Finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nate. And I'm Andrea. And this is a podcast where we talk about the things that we've read, but like we specifically pick a thing to read, and then we both read it at the same time, and then we talk about it. Also, she's my mom, and a librarian. Does that make the podcast more interesting for you? I hope so. But wait, it gets better. Nate is my son, and he's a writer. Mm, sort of. <laughs> you write stuff. <laughs> I do write stuff, that's true. Uh, yeah, and so we read uh, the fifth volume of Swamp Thing. The penultimate volume of Swamp Thing. Ooh, good use. One of our favorite words on this podcast. That I constantly misuse. I'd say top favorite word on this podcast, probably penultimate. Least favorite word, I mean, at least for me, it's fecund. <laughs> Which is a perfect word for this volume of Swamp Thing. Yeah, you know, as much as I dislike that word, you know, that, that's it is not inappropriate to use that in reference to Swamp Thing. I mean, he is a, a force of life and whatnot. He's also moist, if you don't like the word moist. <laughs> I've never gotten, I've never had a, that sort of negative reaction to the word moist that other people have. I mean, I think it's like, generally, right, it's like a pleasant word, like moist cake or a moist towelette that you're going to use to clean gunk off your hands and feel the relief of cleanliness. My favorite word in regards to Swamp Thing is tubers. Tuber is a good word. I like saying tuber a lot. Um, yeah, okay. So this is the, like I said, this is a penultimate volume. So we've got one more after this, uh, which, you know, is leaving me feeling a little bittersweet because this, I like Swamp Thing a lot. I'm excited to get to the next volume, excited to talk about this, but I'm a little bummed that we're going to be leaving our fecund, moist friend and all of his wonderful tubers behind pretty soon. So this is Swamp Thing Volume 5, and it encompasses issues number 51 to 56, and it takes place directly after the whole fight with the Great Darkness and the crisis on Infinity Earths. And it was published between 1986 and 1987. Yeah, so we're fully in the post-crisis DC universe. That doesn't really matter to Swamp Thing, but that is a thing to know, at the very least. Uh, what else was I going to say? Oh, uh, almost all of the art in this volume is done by Rick Beach. Okay. The one exception is issue 53, The Garden of Earthly Delights, is by Toddlebin, and then Toddlebin comes back and does a couple pages... In issue 55. But otherwise, this whole thing is drawn by Rick Veach and inked by Alfredo Alcala, who's done a ton of work on this series. And don't, didn't you tell me off the podcast that Veach ends up taking over after Alan Moore leaves? Yeah, he takes over writing duties. I think he still does the some of the art, but I don't think he writes and draws all of his run. Uh, his stuff is weird. I think it's only until recently, maybe, that DC started collecting it. It might be interesting to go back and talk about it at some point, but not immediately following this. But his stuff brings in, like, some of the other elemental realms besides the green and Swamp Thing and Abby have a kid. John Constantine is involved in that in some capacity. I'll let you figure that out yourself, dear listener. God, he's such a creep. <laughs> I'm sure he volunteered very enthusiastically for the role. I honestly don't remember. It's been a long time. I, re I read those, like... Ages ago, and they were, like, from single issues I was borrowing from someone else. Uh, so, yeah. So, we... This issue, uh, 51, Home Free, 
literally does start immediately after the big fight from the previous volume, and we get the boys, <laughs> Dead Man, this Phantom Stranger, and Swamp Thing wandering back through the afterworld to head home. This is kind of like after like a long night, those movies, those buddy movies where the end of the movies, I'm sitting in a diner recapping. This is kind of like that. They're standing around kind of like both all of them want to go home, but they're still kind of lingering and talking about what they're going to do. And then Swamp Thing decides he wants to go home because he wants to see Abby and then the fa- what? No okay, what does the Phantom? I was going to say the Phantom Stranger is like, I'm going to go do a survey of the universe to figure out what the fuck happened because of our fight. Well, that's, yeah, that probably very good record keeping on his part. Mm-hmm. And then Boston Brand's just going to hang around. But there's a really good part in this where the guy that is so... I don't remember if we talked about it on the podcast, but earlier on we see Boston Brand urge this dude that uh, whose heart stopped to go back to the land of the living because they've given him a cardiac massage. And now that guy's back because he died in a car accident <laughs> in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. And now he's mad at Boston Brand. And he's like, what kind of way is that to run an afterlife? And Brand is like, hey, don't take it up with me. I didn't make the rules. You <laughs> talk to Lucifer. He calls himself a volunteer worker. Yeah. <laughs> and you have volunteers at the library. Are, are How do they compare to the dead man? Uh, they're pretty similar. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Very, very similar. He gets another big moment later on in this volume, too. I really like dead man. I was thinking about this while we were reading it. It feels like... One of the the big lost possibilities in comics is that he never got uh, this this sort of treatment that Swamp Thing gets here, like this vertigo, you know, thoughtful, long running examination of his character, the way that like Swamp Thing and Animal Man and the Doom Patrol got, and even Shade the Changing Man is like an even lesser known character. So. Uh... Hint, hint, there's a story there. Yeah, DC, get, get in touch, because I will, I will write you 60 issues of a Dead Man series. I don't know if anyone would read them, but I will write them. I know at least three people who would be interested in that, so. Uh, yeah, so that's the that's the beginning of the issue. But the bulk of the issue is the literal trials and tribulations of Abby. I think, I mean, she gets arrested... Based on these photographs that the reporter took in the previous issues. Mm-hmm. And then it's the whole thing about like crimes against nature. But I think this entire story arc is like the crimes against nature are sort of are fluid in what it is. Because some people believe that the crime against nature is Abby and the Swamp Thing's relationship. And then Swamp Thing thinks the crimes against nature are the way that he's treated by the people of Gotham and Batman. And then Chester has a different concept of what he thinks crimes against nature is. And then even later on, briefly, when Monroe shows back up, he yeah. also has committed a crime against nature. So I think that, like, the overarching theme of, like, oh, and then what Lex Luthor as a total shit does. <laughs> I love Lex Luthor. This. That's get... also a crime against nature in a lot of ways. Yeah. So I think it's, like, the trial is sort of a stand-in for a lot of different things that people are doing that are inappropriate or dangerous or they think that they're righteous in what they believe, but they're actually harming people. Yeah, I mean, this you touched on it. This uh, story arc is a 
a big overview of a lot of the rest of this book. We like you said, Chester's back. Monroe from the Nuke Face Papers comes back. Woodrow comes back for a few pages. Oh, I forgot about him. Yes, definitely. Batman's there. I think that. Did you think Liz comes back? Liz. Yes, Liz comes back. I mean, that's after all of this crimes against nature stuff wraps up. But, but. she's also. She's also guilty of crimes against nature from working with the Sunderland Corporation. But then also that a crime has been committed against her as well. So I think this is like a lot of like characters Mm -hmm. are dealing with sort of their role in nature and nature's role in their lives. And it's sort of kind of this interlinking um, story. But it's all pretty much premised by... What's going on with Abby and Swamp Thing in their relationship? I mean, a huge part of this story is about, like, the nature of anger and the, like, wh- like the usage of power. The, I think this is, we get in the previous volume when he goes to the Parliament of Trees. They give him that speech about, like, avoid anger, avoid power. Mm-hmm. And this is sort of like... This story, I think, in a lot of ways exists as an illustration of, like, why they would say that. An exploration of that point of view and how it relates to Swamp Thing. We also know from previous Swamp Things that he, not that he's irrational, but that he he's prone to escalate, like, out of proportion to the activity that's happening. Well, yeah, he will, in moments of, of rage, just destroy things. We see that with the fire in the plantation house. We see that with him... Causing the earthquake in Rosewood to wipe out the uh, the vampire town, like he he can get a little nasty. I mean, also the the when he collapses the uh, the caves in South America. Yeah, but I feel like that a lot of times his anger is justified, but his reaction might be extreme. Yes. So this starts out where Abby is. Put on, she's arrested and she's sent before the judge, and she's given this really high bail. And the crime, she's she's being charged with a crime that's like sort of outdated from the eighteen hundreds. They said about people having it's like a bestiality law. I mean, that's a big thing with this. Is everyone in this society agrees? Not everyone, but there's this belief that what Abby is doing is a crime, and it. Moore, who, you know, isn't a avowed uh, leftist and anarchist, is sort of making this point where it's like, the letter of the law really doesn't matter to the people that are applying it. They'll find, they want to punish Abby because they don't like what she's doing and they don't understand her relationship with Swamp Thing. So they'll find any law in the book that fits their needs to punish her with. Yeah, and I think... Because no one can ever really explain how or why what Abby's doing is a crime. But all of these brutish authority figures agree that she needs to be punished and suffer. I think there's two layers. There's the sort of the institutional authority that has the law and is punishing her. Mm -hmm. And then there's also the people in the town who turn against her and turn against Swamp Thing. And I think that's what really upsets her more than the legal problems Mm. because Swamp Thing has been a protector of the town and the land and he has helped people. And especially like when her friend, her boss pays her bail and says, you know, I can't have you around the children. She feels especially hurt because her and Swamp Thing 
save those children. And they do things in the town. They saved them from the plantation ghosts. They do all these different things the in the town. King. The monkey king. And then all of a sudden, their sort of prejudices turn against her. But there's really, they don't, like you said, there's really no justification. Because the people in the town know what Swamp Thing is. And they know Swamp Thing. And they know Abby. And they know that he's like a benevolent, mm-hmm. you know, he t- protector. But yet they still act like... You know, she's doing something that's... I mean, they just lose all of their open-mindedness. You know, like with Chester, and he's so open-minded about the environment. Like, all of those people immediately turn on someone, and they pretty much drive her out of the town where she ends up leaving because she can't deal with them persecuting her. So she ends up going to what she thinks is a better place, Gotham. Yes, so after the preliminary hearing, they set her high bail. Her boss from the children's home dina pays her bail out of um gratitude for her being so good with the children but then fires her and then she keeps getting obscene mail and obscene phone calls which is a very 80s thing the obscene phone caller uh there's a rockwell song about that uh <laughs> yeah and also like the brick in the window yeah you like know, like the whispering when she walks around the town it's like what we talked about before with this idea that like swamp thing is a queer character at abby's relationship with swamp thing at least in regards to the rest of society is treated like a queer relationship and there's lots of uh shades of homophobia in the way she's treated and eventually it becomes so much that she decides to run away and the only place she can think to go is gotham because you know gotham is the it's the big city stand-in in dc it's sort of new york in LA and Chicago all at once. So like of course if you're gonna run away, that's where you go. It's also kind of a citywide circus. And so like you run away and you join the circus. You go to Gotham. And then she arrives in Gotham and is mistaken for a prostitute and is arrested in a prostitution raid. But I think also Gotham sort of has this image that that's where a lot of like what do they call them in this issue what do they call the mutants or the superheroes or metahumans metahumans i mean yeah it is like a place people go to disappear yeah so i mean she kind of has this impression that you know batman's there and then there's like it's like a hotbed of like metahuman activity that maybe they would be more open-minded so she ends up leaving to go and swamp thing shows up and yeah. he was like, where is she? It was really sad. He shows up in her house and she's gone. And he uh, wanders around confused until he finds the... Uh, Another very 80s plot point. A newspaper heading tells yeah, him what's going he on. He finds a newspaper heading that says that she jumped bail. And also reveals that she's being persecuted for her relationship with him. And then he flies into a rage. And like... Bugs Bunnies to Gotham. Yeah. Like, he, we see him as, like, a streak flying through the green, and he's, like, moving across the ground, and there's, like, a trail of flowers and grasses growing and blooming behind him. And it, it I think this is intentional, because they've referenced old cartoons and stuff before. But it really reminds me of when Bugs Bunny is digging through the ground, and he's leaving that, like, furrow. Yeah, I mean, he's, like, dogs are howling because he's so mad and yeah. he's throwing a tree and he's punching things. Oh, yeah. Before and at he... one point he just grabs two trees and, like, starts shaking them together. Like... Yeah. He goes on a rampage before, <laughs> in the swamp before 
he travels to Gotham. But you know what I thought it was interesting was a lot of them, a lot of the people who were persecuting her and her legal problems, and even when she ends up going to Gotham and she gets arrested, they keep calling her Mrs. Cable. Well, technically she is still married to him and he is still alive, but he's in a coma. Yeah. Because a part of her fantasy she has later is that he awakes from the coma <laughs> and files for automatic divorce. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's like Al Moore not understanding like American law, but that's No, like- <laughs> I don't think that I don't think that's what that is at all. I think that's literally supposed to be a a fantasy. Yes. Yeah. I mean it's also like dream like it's like you know that being married to him is a problem and then your brain just kind of makes the easiest solution. But does he eventually die? I mean, well, yeah, because he becomes a raven. Oh, that's right. That's right. <laughs> I don't know if we see him. I for, for sure thought there was an issue in this run where we see him actually die, but that might not be the case as we're getting closer to the end and it hasn't happened yet. Yeah. Uh, so Abby gets arrested in Gotham. And, she meets Bullock. Yeah, and this is less... The stuff that's happening with her Gotham feels less like a... Um, Moral condemnation of the law and more like a, a pragmatic condemnation of the law. All the pe- all the Gotham police forces or p- police force people, Bullock, Commissioner Gordon, even Batman, they don't they're not passing a moral judgment on Abby, but they're hamstrung by this system that's tied to this outdated morality. That to do their jobs, they have to arrest her and send her back to Gotham, and it's clear that none of them really understand what's going on or want to do it, but. It, this story is kind of like a fairy tale, where, like, the evil witch kidnaps the princess and the knight has to save her, except the evil witch is American society. Mm-hmm. I think it's pretty funny, though, the way that Bulk is depicted. I mean, he's kind of like a really gross, gluttonous kind of, like, character. He's eating a giant hoagie, because we're from Philadelphia. Yeah. So I don't... Whatever you call it, we call it a hoagie. And he's all sloppy eating a sandwich and there's mustard dripping all over the paperwork. And he's, you know, and then later on when he's talking to Abby, he tries to like warn her a little bit about making alliances with people that he feels are dangerous. Yeah. So you could tell that like Bullock is not like. He's not just a piece of shit. Yeah, he's not a straight lace. I don't remember what he does, but there's a part in this where he ends up being the smartest guy in the room. Well, that's kind of like his role too. Now... To shout out to a oh. related podcast. Yes, I also do a podcast about the television show Gotham. But he's the same way in Gotham. Yeah. He's kind of like depicted as this like buffoon stereotype of fat, gross detective police officer. But a lot of times he's the most astute person in the room because he's not like super villain crazy. Yeah, like, he's like a normal guy. Yeah, so he's not always like, you know... To him, like, if a crime is committed, he doesn't immediately think it's, like, this huge three-year plan that the Joker started. To him, it's like, maybe someone committed a crime, you know? But, like, the commissioner and Batman are always like, it's gotta be, insert supervillain. Yeah. Here, the supervillain is people's closed-mindedness. <laughs> so they, they have her. She's in Gotham. They're gonna send her um, before the judge, and they're gonna extradite her back to... Louisiana, because I guess she crossed state lines. They do they do a good job of not explicitly stating what state 
Gotham is in, but it's not in Louisiana. Well, I kind of got the impression that it might be. It's in Middle America at some point, and at some point they reference Evanston, which I think is in Illinois. So I kind of thought it was like in near Chicago in my mind. I mean, they reference a bunch of maybe. Yeah, I but, think that's like a thing. It's like Springfield. They don't really want you to know where it is, but the a whole lot of the time crux... people are like geographically, Gotham is. A replacement for Chicago and Metropolis is a replacement for St. Louis. But that's like a very soft distinction. Like that doesn't, it's not official and doesn't come up, but a lot of people do treat it that way. Yeah, but I think the whole plot point from this point on is that Gotham is hosting an extradition hearing for Abby Mm -hmm. in Gotham. And that's where the nutty hijinks start out. So Swamp Thing heads there. Right. Before he gets to all the, to there, he makes a stop. Talk about this cover. Oh, so this, this is issue 52. Nat- it's called Natural Consequences. And this is sort of like a partly a wrap-up, partly the start of the main story arch. Yeah, there's this awesome cover where Swamp Thing is like all vines and he's angry and there's a thunderstorm behind him. And he's enveloping Arkham Asylum. Uh which is where he stops off in this, to talk with another mind he finds in the green. And do you, did you think it was the fake out, and then he was going to talk to Poison Ivy? Because I was... I kind of... When I first... I forgot about Woodrow. And I did think that that's maybe who he was talking about. Yeah. I think this is really before they, um... Before Poison Ivy becomes a person with plant powers, and while she's still just kind of a, a woman that's an eco-terrorist... Funny enough, though, I think currently in DC Comics continuity, she has replaced Swamp Thing as the Earth Elemental. Oh, okay. Uh, but yeah, he stops in while Abby is being forced through the uh, vice of bureaucracy. Swamp Thing stops in uh, Arkham Asylum and has a conversation with Woodrow, who is repentant for the things that he did and for the way he abused the Green and is given absolution by Swamp Thing, but he says he will be the last soul forgiven this night. Yeah, but I think it's kind of nice because it sort of wraps up his story arc with him in a in a sort of genteel way, but it also leaves open and I don't know if it ever happens, but the you know, the the opportunity that Woodrow could help Swamp Thing in yeah. some kind of way in the future. It also foreshadows that like Swamp Thing has come now that he is so angry and is about to make this big dramatic attack on human civilization, he's come to some form of understanding with Woodrow. He still thinks Woodrow is wrong and that the things that he did were cruel and unjustified, but he understands him better now than he did before. Who is that? Uh, there's like a bald lady on a panel. I think that's Mockingbird. Okay. Because in the... In the panels for the Arkham, you can see the Joker, and you can see Harvey Dent, and then you can see Woodrow, and then you see this other sort of less detailed character. Yeah, and this is a, a very dark descript, uh, depiction of Arkham Asylum. I think it's it's in line with the uh, the um, Grant Morrison Arkham Asylum, a serious house on serious Earth comic. It also reminds me a lot of the way Arkham is portrayed in the beginning of Sandman. I was just thinking that, yes. Definitely. When uh, Dr. D is escaping from there. Exactly. It's like these, just this, 
it's like an endless wall of black cells where and everyone is there's this like hint but never confirmation that it's like haunted or damned Woodrow doesn't want to stay because of the voices but Swamp Thing still leaves them there does anyone ever take the time to wonder why Gotham is such like a nexus of like evil supervillains there is a story called Dark Knight Dark City by Peter Milligan and I forget who did the art Uh, that's like a Riddler versus Batman story that basically reveals that in the colonial era uh these sort of like hellfire clubs slash freemason type rich old landowners summoned a demon called the barbados that's still trapped under gotham okay and which may or may not be why it's so messed up so there's that it may or may not be because of a demon so this is also very early on you find out that the government is still hunting Swamp Thing. They're, yeah, they. I mean, it's interesting. It's an interesting portrayal of the government because they don't feel like this massive, established, authoritarian force. They feel like a gang. It feels like they're mostly upset that Swamp Thing killed Sunderland and they want revenge, not to capture him and use him like you would imagine the government to be betrayed in this situation. It kind of reminded me, and I don't know if just because this had so much to do with the natural world, but when we read the Ursula Le Guin novella. Oh, yeah, yeah. And the general was really mad at nature and really mad at the inhabitants of the land where he himself was the invader but didn't see that. Go back and listen to that episode. It's very good. But it sort of reminded me of the same thing. Dilworth, who was in essence representing the government, he himself had more of a grudge against Swamp Thing than the government did. Yeah. So, and he takes it, I mean, he escalates it to like the 10th level. Well, they're going to bring in a consultant for 10 minutes. $10 million for 10 minutes. So mm-hmm. that's a really good consultant fee, mister. Yeah. You, you really know what you're doing at that point. I love it. I love this idea. I love the who the consultant is and why he's the consultant. It's such a smart, like comics idea where like you're using the the fact that you're in the shared universe to its fullest extent but then also it leaves you waiting for someone else to show up yeah because like you know you have you're in arkham you have batman you're you have the consultant you have and you know like you want all these nemesis to show up yeah i mean and it builds this thing where it's like the world is really aligning against it's really becoming swamp thing versus the world yeah and i think lex Luthor. oh well, you can. I spoiler alert. Yeah, spoiler alert. The consultant is Lex Luthor, which pays off the thing that happens in the Crisis on the Earth issue, where Swamp Thing has this like premonition about this like dark influence Luthor is going to have on his life. Yeah, and it's this. But so the let's just talk about the consultant thing now. Okay. So the idea is Lex Luthor is a super smart guy who spends all of his time thinking about how to kill. The most unkillable being on the planet. It's a very niche hobby that he has. So in his spare time, he makes money by telling people how to kill slightly less unkillable beings. Like, it's like he's training with weighted clothing. He spends all his time thinking about how to kill Superman, who's impossible to kill. So if you ask him to kill anybody else, he could come up with a solution in nine minutes, which is what he does. He sketches out this whole elaborate weapon to kill Swamp Thing on a napkin and gives it to them, and they're like, you didn't use the whole ten minutes. And he's like, well, that'll give you time to sign my check. And then he leaves, and he never directly interacts with Swamp Thing. And he's just, 
this like super casual, super banal portrait of evil. Like he he exists almost as like a complete opposite of Swamp Thing. He's aggression without passion or goal. He's just this amoral destroyer who will like build you a super weapon just for some money and he doesn't care how or if you use it. But the best is he's like the iconic late seventies, early eighties Lex Luthor. He's yeah. the bald headed businessman who's extremely intelligent but extremely evil. And he's sort of that kind of like iconic suit that you expect to see with the bald head in the suit and that's Lex Luthor. Like they're like, We wanna kill Swamp Thing. He never questions it, he never thinks about the broader implications of killing Swamp Thing. It's just like, Oh, you wanna kill Swamp Thing? Here's how you do it. But, yeah, so it's exactly like you said, like, at some point in his, like, Lex Luthor think tank that he has, which is just him sitting in some big office. It's a literal tank he gets in to think. <laughs> he, he's already spent, I mean, he obviously spent more than nine minutes thinking about how to kill Swamp Thing. Oh, he I just, think he did. I think he just, just had a ten-minute meeting. Yeah. He's, like, super, he's the great, he's the perfect businessman. I mean, his meetings are only ten minutes long. <laughs> He just tells you what to do. He gives out the action points, and then you're gone. There's no, like, how do you feel about this, or let's discuss it. That's, like, the perfect businessman. I've, I've always loved this idea, and I wish... Because it, it creates this implication where it's like, how many superheroes that could have been don't exist because someone paid Lex Luthor $10 million to tell them how to kill him, like, the second after he showed up? <laughs> like, there are... are meta, you know, there are essentially, I think superhero graveyards full of could-have-beens that Lex Luthor cut down because he needed enough money to buy a new yacht. Why isn't there a series that's like the Lex Luthor Files where he just discusses all of the, you know, cases that he's undertaken where he's destroyed these people and made billions? But let's get back to the story. Okay. So, Abby's about to go out to... She's being escorted into the trial Mm -hmm. and people are heckling her and someone gives her a rose, which mm-hmm. she takes into the courtroom, and then the trial is going on, and, and things. she's getting very upset, and she's crying. The judge is yelling at her. The judge is yelling at her. And then one of my favorite Swamp Thing variations happens in the next couple of minutes. He bursts out of the rose. Well, she and- drops the rose on the ground, and she's talking to him through it first, and it looks to all observers like she's lost it, mm-hmm. or like she's fucking with it. She's like, oh, that would be so funny. And then she puts the rose down and he erupts out of it. And it's a full page spread of Swamp Thing made out of like rose thorns and, and tendrils exploding into this courthouse. Yeah, and then when they show him, he's just like covered in like red roses. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, of course they start trying to shoot him and he has a fight with one of the police officers. And then everybody's like, oh, no, look. And Bullock's like, you know, pointing a gun at him. And he sort of has like this little mini meltdown. And he says, you know, let her go. Well, it also gives this speech about the guns at this point. Right, right yes. This is exactly what I was talking about. Yeah, because you mentioned in the pro- when we were talking about the... Um... He says, you can shoot the animals in the forest, but you can't shoot the forest. <laughs> That's a great line. <laughs> and he, what, he says something before that, too. Yeah, always guns. Are they your only solution? And there's, like, you know, dots between each of them. And that's when he says you can shoot the animals in the forest, but you cannot shoot the forest. Yeah, and so this gets back to the thing that you were talking about when we were discussing... I, I can't remember what the issue is called, but the one about the... Um, the one that's, like, about the Winchester Mystery House. 
And you were talking about how, like, in Swamp Thing, the, you know, the only people that use guns are bad guys and antagonists. And, like, it feels like Alan Moore maybe hates guns. And this feels very direct of him, like, calling them out as, like, a, a crude and stupid weapon. And I think it's interesting because we finally do get some characters in this story who are ostensibly good guys or who are trying to be good guys in the form of Gordon and Bullock who have guns, and the second Swamp Thing enters the story, he renders their guns useless. Well, yeah, because, I mean, there's the part where Bullock has the gun, and he's telling people to back up or he's going to shoot. He never actually shoots off his gun. Yeah. But... And then, well, then Abby pleads with Swamp Thing not to to make, to make sure that they don't shoot in this situation. She doesn't want to start a gunfight here in the courthouse. And that's when Swamp Thing relents and he lays out this ultimatum of like, you know, return my wife to me and I'll return your city to you. And he begins the process of enveloping Gotham in vegetation. Yeah, well, I think he sort of shows them because he turns the courthouse into a forest. Mm -hmm. And then when they're like, no, we're still not going to let her go. That's when he says, well, I'm going to turn this whole damn city into like some wacky botanical garden. And like... uh, and he just zips off, same thing, like, with the Bugs Bunny, but yeah. this time, he, it's all covered with flowers while he's yeah. zooming out of there. There's nothing but flowers. Uh, yeah, and then we get the Lex Luthor thing. There's a great panel of him looking super evil, his big, bushy eyebrows and his leering face. But I also love the part where it's like, a guy's watching this happen on a portable TV, which is so <laughs> 80s. Yeah, it's like the little th- it's like the thing that uh, Bodie shows the hostage video to Johnny Utah on <laughs> in Point Break. Um, yeah, and so Gotham starts to become a jungle, and this part's really cool. This imagery of the like wild Gotham it it gets referenced in Batman comics a lot. Uh, Scott Snyder, who uh, you know was the big Batman writer for years, his first. Uh, I think it's his first Batman story. Opens with a character releasing the the birds from the Gotham Avery. So there's just these, like, this image of the city with these, like, exotic birds juxtaposed against the, like, harsh concrete and glass becomes a recurring image in that. And then later on, he does a story called Zero Year, where the Riddler isolates the city and, like, sends it back to the Stone Age, and a lot of the imagery in that is, like, appears to be a direct reference to the way that Gotham is portrayed in this. Yeah, because, I, I mean, you can see it, like, when they it has sort of the the four panels, and it shows, like, the city reverting back to, like, this sort of, like, Edenist state. The children are very excited, and they love it, and it's, like, really natural to them, mm. so they start getting very excited. And then slowly, as the city becomes more and more forest-like, other people in the town start to take up this sort of, like, hedonistic lifestyle. And you see, like, some of the people, almost like Adam and Eve, they take off their clothes and they walk into the forest. Mm-hmm. And then there's this great panel. It shows, like, the skyline of Gotham and all the skyscrapers. And then the trees are growing up around it. And then perched on a gargoyle, you see just part of Batman's cape flapping where he's watching what's happening but at this point he doesn't really interact into what's going on he's sort of just observing this sort of natural forestation that's taking place in the city yeah well which is funny because like you always think like batman's like gotham is my town Mm. 
but he's, I don't know if he's waiting for a critical mass or he's just sort of like, like a benevolent, like observer at this point. We don't really know. Like we, we don't know what Batman is going to do, but now we know that Batman has gotten to the point where he's actually about to step into the situation. We know he knows Swamp Thing. So I think yes. that's part of the deal with him. He's like, this isn't a supervillain. This isn't Poison Ivy doing this. I know this guy. But it, it, that panel with him on the cargo, it says this is not... It's talking about Swamp Thing. It says this is not his home turf. One, one thing leads to another. And then we get this panel of Batman where like his body is entirely a shadow with the next issue yeah. thing in it. And a lot of this volume almost sets up Swamp Thing and Batman as like rival gods. Like Batman is not he's he's this is a more neutral Batman than I think we get nowadays. This is a far cry from like the aggro Zack Snyder Ben Affleck Batman. But also but, we know I mean we we saw the instance where John Constantine ran into Batman. So we know how Alan Moore feels about Batman and how he depicts him. Yeah, he's a square. So I mean, we kind of we kind of were like, okay, this we're gonna get this kind of straight laced, you know, uptight Batman coming into the town. But, but I he's like, not like immediately like more my city, get out of here. But it's clear he does not he does not like Gotham as a jungle. Yeah. <laughs> he prefers it to be a city. Well. <laughs> Yeah. But I like the cover. So the next issue is volume 53, and it's called Garden of Earthly Delights. And this is sort of like the um, the Sandman issue, The Tempest. You know, it's really, the, it's very lush, it's very beautiful. The, the background... The, um, the Midsummer's Night Dream? Midsummer's Night Dream, yes. That sort of like the really artistic kind of experimental style of artwork. You see that in this issue. Yeah, I mean, it's it's Tottleman. He's back, and he, he goes wild with drawing these backgrounds and with the panels. We see... Um, we get this, like, overview of how the city is changing. The gangs are, are becoming more tribalistic. One of them breaks into the zoo and releases the animals. Uh, so now there's just, like, wild... Animals roaming around Gotham. Uh, there's, there's all of these panels of just like trees and vines and flowers growing over everything and starting to obscure the uh, the buildings. There's this really cool page where the panels are arranged like in a cross. So with like three small square panels going down and then in between them these two long panels and everything is framed with like the like twigs and it's just like Swamp Thing walking through the city and like feeling the this jungle he's created and there's like hunters and tigers and street gangs doing break dancing amongst the leaves. I like that I mean it's kind it, it's two things. It's Swamp Thing's display of his power mm-hmm. where he's finally showing the world how much power he can harness from the green. Because the first couple of volumes are him sort of becoming comfortable being an Earth Elemental. Mm-hmm. And now he's sort of embraced it. And then also it's more, it's like a love token. It's mm-hmm. like it's like a bouquet of flowers for Abby, but it's I mean, an entire city. He literally, I don't know if it's in this issue or not, but there's a point where he literally says that in his internal monologue that he has turned the city into a bouquet for her. Oh. 
But I like how it opens in such a very iconic 80s movie way. Oh, with the TV. With this sort of montage of like news stories. And that sort of becomes like, like it's very 80s, but then it also becomes like this like storytelling technique. It's like the easy way to get the backstory out quickly with this quick like montage of like, you know, because CNN is starting to come into prevalence in pop culture and this sort of news 24-hour news cycle and, you know, everybody in the country is wondering what's happening in the Gotham. Yeah, and it turns out that the... Uh, this sequence is really good because it's like this slow zooming out. We see that the TVs are... Uh, they're in a storefront that's mm-hmm. been smashed open and there's trees and, like, vines growing in the storefront. And, like, one of the TVs has branches exploding out of it. And then we see a hand pick a flower from in front of one of the televisions, and then it turns out that hand belongs to Batman. Mm -hmm. Who then shows up, that transitions into the next scene where we get another TV that turns out to be in the police station, and then Batman shows up in the police station to talk to Bullock and Gordon and discuss what the fuck they're going to do about what Swamp Thing is doing to the city. But I can't, I mean, it seems like, even the police officers, it seems like the city really... Is enjoying being this sort of well, yeah. Some people are, are into it, and that's a big part of this. Is this like, well, some people want this, and like, would it be right to take it away from them? Is it like appropriate for Swamp Thing to use his powers to directly benefit mankind? I mean, he's not supposed to be a servant of mankind, and part of his philosophy about nature is that like it's stupid from humans to think that it exists for their benefit and that's a what he deliberately calls people out in those terms but we see like beat cops walking around and they're like picking fruit and they get one of those tubers one of swamp things tubers and one of them eats it and we get a very brief single panel of him starting to have his trip yeah and he can't arrest anybody because his car's filled with strawberries and peaches yeah But I think one of the things that I think is really interesting that's happening right in the beginning of this volume is Chester shows up. He has, like, it's very, it's a weird plot point that they have to point out multiple times that he hitchhiked there. He hitchhiked there. He doesn't have a car. They want you to know he doesn't have a car, so he's not bullshit. But he, he knows what's going on, and he, I guess they don't really, it's sort of happening off. He sees the news, it's implied at least. He sees the news story about the... T- After the cop eats the tuber, we get a news story that's like, hey, watch out, there's psychedelic tubers in right. the streets. And then right after that, Chester shows up. So I think the implication is he sees the news story about the tuber, puts it together where his came from, but he and also, makes the pilgrimage to Gotham. But it also seems like he might know more now than he did the first time we encounter about Swamp Thing in general. Yeah, and he arrives at the same time as Monroe. Right, which I think is interesting because Chester is the environmentalist mm-hmm. and Monroe is the, you know, polluter. And in a way, they team up and then Chester starts to comfort Monroe. Yeah. And to sort of give him some kind of solace and kind of like as much as he can at some forgiveness for what he had done. Yeah. Because I guess Monroe is sort of traveling around the country like in the state of like, he doesn't know what to do because he's he's a polluter and he's hurt his wife and he's done these terrible things. Yeah, he's like haunted. I mean, I think we get with Monroe and Chester together. We have like two men who have been given an opportunity through Swamp Thing, essentially, 
whether or not Monroe knows that, to view themselves with moral clarity. And Chester is beginning to come to terms with and come to an understanding with, like, the guy that he saw, who is himself. And Monroe is horrified of what he saw and is, like, wracked with guilt and doesn't know what to do with it. And we find out that his wife... Uh, that their child was stillborn after their encounter with Nukeface, and she's dying, and he doesn't know what to do. He, he sees himself as incapable of giving her anything in her, you know, dying moments, and so he's run away again here to Gotham in hopes of getting something out of this, some absolution. Well, Chester tells him, you know, maybe you should get one of these tubers. Well, yeah, they, they later on they have a conversation and Chester gives him the tuber and is like, hey, maybe give this to your wife. That might help. But before that happens, Swamp Thing and Batman have a fight. Yes, but he should. Ba- Batman shows up very dramatically in his souped-up Batmobile it's, that is also a comment on the deforestation of old growth forests. Yeah, it's got, like, spinning buzz saws. <laughs> it's shaped like a bat. Uh, yeah. It's uh, it's good, but he shows up with it, and the first thing he does is say, uh, hey, "Can we talk?" <laughs> I think like this is really in- um, a cool thing that's happening visually in this though is because uh, Swamp Thing has wiped out most of the electrical grid. He's also wiped out the light pollution, and there's this you see stars reflected in the windshield of Batman's. Batmobile, which is a thing you never see because Gotham is always illuminated with light. Right. The image, it's interesting how almost unsettling the imagery of Batman beneath the stars is because you never see that. Well, also it implies that, I mean, Batman is a city dweller. Yeah. So you don't often encounter him in, in any natural setting. You mostly see him like in like warehouses and standing on tops of buildings and you know, really industrialized, you know, man-made places. So, yeah, he looks kind of out of place in the natural world. I mean, he comes to, like, a forest to talk to an earth elemental with a, you know... Buzzsaw tank. A buzzsaw. Well, that's what he means. He can't drive his... All of his methods for navigating the city don't work when the city is a forest. He can't use the Batmobile to drive through the streets when the streets are covered in vines. Right. So he shows up, and then he's like, can we talk? And then he's like, hmm, this isn't working out. So then he shoots him with his gun. Well, he speaks for the like the, the system thing, where he's like, look, I like you, and this is wrong, but like we have to do this, and can you please just chill out? And Swamp Thing's like, no, I'll never chill out. <laughs> if you think this isn't chilled out, wait do you see what I do next. So he sprays him with defoliant. <laughs> this is like a recurring theme, though, this sort of, uh, you know, these toxic chemicals yeah. that are being used to, like try to kill Swamp Thing or neutralize Swamp Thing's environment. We saw that in in Brazil when they coated the walls of the cave with some kind of, you know, chemical to stop him from being able mm-hmm. to generate and then using sort of insecticides and pesticides and and things like that. And then Lex Luthor just, like, cranks it up to 11. And, yeah. you know, so he's kind of, like... And then Swamp Thing makes... A bunch of new bodies, which is foreshadowing for a thing that's going to happen at the end of this volume. And there's this, like, uh, awesome image of him 
of all of these swamp things emerging out of the fog of the defoliant spray, and then Batman has one panel of his face where he just goes, uh-oh. And then, uh, Swamp Thing beats ass, kicks Batman's ass. Well, and kind of like Swamp Thing, like, it's kind of like you need this because you you just, you're unreasonable at this point. So he just sort of threatens him and says I, he wants his I mean, he only wants one thing, and that is his wife back. Yeah. So that's, like, the thing that he wants. Um, and then he goes back and he tells Bullock, and, you know, he tells the commissioner. Well, thing makes a... F- the mayor, and, I think it's the mayor. They're Bullock and, and Gordon, and I, yeah, and I think the mayor, they're having a... A meeting and Swamp Thing makes a face out of the wood in their table and yells at them. And it's like this giant imposing Swamp Thing face. It looks like the Parliament of Trees. I think he tells them something very scary too. I think he, that's when they, he says to them, he's like, remember there's flour in your intestines. Is this when he says it? He says... He says it in this issue. Yeah. In this one he just says, uh, he tells them your champion has fallen, talking about Batman. And then he tells them that nowhere is safe. And uh, they have until dawn to return Abby. And then there's this moment where he shows up to the people of Gotham. And they, uh, a little girl gives him a flower. This is where Chester finally gets to meet him. Uh, he's embraced by all these people. He lifts the girl up onto his shoulder. I think this is all supposed to be like a deliberate... The thing with him and the little girl, I think, is supposed to deliberately evoke Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. But in like a more positive way. He's showing like he's not a monster. Cause he well, it's the same thing, like... Frankenstein, who's the monster? Yeah. Uh, and then we get this very sad image of, like, there's this crowd around Swamp Thing, and they're, like, celebrating and embracing him, and off alone on the outskirts, unable to even face him, is Monroe. And then Batman's bandaging himself up. We get some news stories from people uh, who are in support of Swamp Thing. People, environmentalists, anti-authoritarian punks, the little girl who just likes him because he's nice. And he has flowers growing off of his body. And this is all happening. It's another thing with the TV slowly zooming out. We see a hand, and the hand turns out to be Batman's. And he's bandaging himself up. And it's, like, really driving home this idea that, like, Batman is the city's champion. He is to Gotham City as Swamp Thing is to the green. But he is human and fragile, and Swamp Thing is not. I think, though, that Swamp Thing, because he has Holland's memories, he's not... Technically human, but he does have, like, empathy for mm-hmm. the human state. Because, I mean, he says that a lot of times when he deals with Constantine. Like, he, he knows he could just squash Constantine anytime he wants. Mm-hmm. Oh, and then this whole sequence that happens after this is wild. First, he's like... He brings the bugs. He brings the bugs. And this Batman has bug spray. Of course. In his belt. And then they're like, what's that sound? And they're talking about the... Um, Oh, I think this is the part where, I don't know, they're, they're talking about um, the botanical garden, because Bullock is like, I mean, how much vegetation is there in the city? And Batman's like, what about the botanical garden? There's all of these carnivorous plants and uh-huh. poisonous flowers, and then they hear this rumbling sound like thunder, and they're like, what is it? And Batman's like, redwoods, and we get another full page reveal of a new oh, swamp thing Isn't form. this wild? And he's created this... Like, giant out of the redwoods. Uh, he's, like, almost skeletal. He's got these, like, spiraling uh, parts that are making up, like, a rib cage, And his eyes are these, like, huge glowing red 
uh, things. And that's where I think we really start to understand how a being like Swamp Thing could become like those giants at the parliament. Yeah. I mean, he his spine is literally a redwood tree. I mean, he's... It, and compared to the like the scale, he's taller than the skyscrapers. Yeah, and he's just walking down, and you see these little tiny specks of people, and he and you know it's that's kind of like King Kong almost. You know, yeah, he's walking down. I mean, this is very King Kong. It's the he's trying to get his his beautiful love back, and he's like rampaging through the city. Like, I think that's a very deliberate callback in the same way the Frankenstein one was, and this is when he. He basically tells him like there's there's nothing you can do. He brings up the the that's the scary part in the intestines, and then he just lets this form drop, and we get another view of how big they, this thing is because we see like police officers starting to climb in its mouth. But I think when he drops that sort of not very veiled threat that humans have flora in their guts and he can control that. That's when you start to realize how much power Swamp Thing can wield. And that's when you first get the inclination that even though he's doing what he thinks is right, he has gone beyond any kind of like scope of controlling himself that the green the elementals warned him about. Because they said that to him. They said, don't get too angry don't get yeah. too big and what does he do he gets angry and he gets huge <laughs> but then the panel and the very small on the bottom and you see like bullock and commissioner gordon and batman and says jim i want you to talk to the mayor now and this is where batman saves the day with talking he he does a <laughs> by your own logic a gotcha to the mayor to convince him it's, this is really good i like this part a lot because batman's like look i don't care at this point like this I, what I care about is the city, and I don't necessarily care about the laws. And the city is dying, and this dude will kill people, and you need to release his wife now. And the mayor's like, no, we can't do that. The law, blah, blah, blah. And then Batman's like, cool. Do you want to arrest everyone that has a relationship with an inhuman creature? Uh, because he's like, you'd have to go after Hawkman and Metamorpho uh, Starfire, her race evolved from cats, the Martian Manhunter, Captain Adam, and of course then, what's his name? The one who lives in Metropolis? And then we just get this horrified look of realization on the mayor's face where he's like, oh, oh no. But see, this is what I was talking about. This is sort of like this double-edged superhero conundrum where these people, humans, have become dependent and they expect these superhumans to protect them but they don't want to consider them to have any kind of faults or fallibility or even to be human. Mm -hmm. I mean, even though people know that Batman's a human, they don't expect him to be weak or tired or sick or... Yeah. And I feel like that's kind of like how they... Abby was treated. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, Swamp Thing had done things for the town to protect it, but then they turn on him. Mm -hmm. And so, so they, they finally relent and they agree to release Abby... Uh, Batman and Swamp Thing have another conversation where Batman's like, um, they're letting her go, you won, but if you ever do this to my city again, then I'll kill you. And Swamp Thing's like, yeah, you probably will. He says, yes, I do believe you might, and he gives a little wry smile. But I think it's interesting that they... Batman got his heat back. It's very transparent that Batman is negotiating in good faith. Yeah. He thinks that he is coming to a compromise with Swamp Thing, and he's gonna—he has a resolution to end this standoff. Mm -hmm. 
And then, but then we come back to the military dudes, and they're they're preparing to kill Swamp Thing. They're going to shoot him with this thing that's going to jumble his bioelectric frequency, so he can't connect to the green. And then they're going to blow him up. I let's take a minute. And to this pause. is like, okay. And explain to me in the guys that you're explaining to the to the people listening to the podcast, but mostly because I don't really understand it. What is with Swamp Thing's frequency? Uh, I mean, he... We actually talked about this uh, in the very first volume when we compared the green to the internet. Okay. So all of the life on Earth is transmitting and receiving on a specific frequency. And Swamp Thing is naturally attuned to it. So when they change his frequency... He's unable to connect with the rest of life and is therefore unable to connect with the green. And we also see that um, with uh, Woodrow. When he builds the machine to tune in to the, uh, to the green, he like connects that little radio thing to the flower mm-hmm. in the very first volume. He's tuning in to the specific frequency that uh, the plants and Swamp Thing are transmitting and receiving on. So theoretically, this is, this is the part that confused me. There's a frequency for the creatures, or there's a frequency for the planets or the worlds? I mean, I think that Swamp Thing is attuned. I mean, I don't know. It depends. I, it's like, not, the green has one frequency, and he's in tune with that, so that's why he can connect to the green. Yeah. So then what Lex Luthor is doing is he's going to disrupt the frequency so that Swamp Thing can't connect to the green. Yeah. Is he... Okay, but he's not disrupt. He's disrupting. He's Swamp Thing's sh- sh- it's like if Swamp Thing is a radio, right? Mm-hmm. And he's tuned to a specific channel, which is a specific frequency, and that lets him send and receive signals with all the other plants on Earth. And the network that's created by all those signals being sent and received is the green, and that's the frequency that he's. Yeah. And so when he gets hit by the thing that Luther designed, they're just turning his dial to a different number and now he can't send and receive signals with all the other plants right so so no matter no matter what greenery is around because he's on a different frequency now his frequency has changed because of this machine he can't regenerate yeah he can't because he what he would do before would just transmit his mind essentially as organic data through the green to a different plant body right so so batman doesn't know this he doesn't have any idea that this is happening so when this happens he's just as confused as abby and the rest of the people there yeah and this is like uh this is so sad we get like swamp thing shows up and makes a uh there's like a reporter who's speculating that swamp thing might be a creation of the media and then he regenerates in front of him and knocks him down and then Abby's coming out of the courthouse. We get this really beautiful page where it's like a panel of the door closed. The door's opening. She's there on the doorway. We see both their faces. They look so like pensive, you know, like because they've both been hurt. They're they're trying to figure out if this is real. And then she bursts into tears and starts running towards him. And then he gets shot with this thing and starts freaking out. I think it's interesting, too, this whole sort of montage of them reuniting. All the panels are circular. Yeah. And then when he gets shot, 
and he starts to fall, it's sort of start the circles start to separate and they become individual bubbles. Yeah. And then the end of it is just like this panel that's an arch and Batman's cape is like swirling in the middle of it and then all you see is the sort of dust that Swamp Thing has become. Yeah. And I think like one of the ways that Toddleburn cuz he's wait, is this this is still Toddleburn, right? In this issue. Yeah, 53 is is him. He's so good with the like panel structure. I mean, one of the ways he shows us that like Swamp Thing is disoriented is all the panels like you said are circles and then all over the page are these empty circles, these sort of like empty panels, this like uh, information with, or like this uh, transmission with no information that's like scrambling his signal. And it's scrambling our ability to read the comic and creating these like false, meaningless panels within the page where it's like one is just like part of Swamp Thing's shoulder, and one of them is like a little bit of his hand and a little bit of Abby's dress. Uh, and I think that's a really cool technique. As he's, they drop the napalm on him, which is horrifying, and I think is like you said, going back to the um, word for world is forest thing. I think is very deliberately supposed to invoke like Vietnam. Like this whole sequence, I think, is a like jambalaya of imagery meant to invoke instances of brutality and authoritarianism instigated by the U.S. government. Because we get this the Vietnam thing with the napalm. He's assassinated on the court steps. Like it feels. Very much like he's supposed to be like a civil rights figure. Also, interestingly, same way that uh, Captain America dies in Civil War. Not that he gets shot with a frequency thing, but he is assassinated on the court steps. Yeah, and I think that's that's very... I think it's interesting, too, because there's a part in here where one of the characters makes this quote about... Uh, trees make more pollution or something like something like that trees pollute more than people uh that's what you're talking about the mayor or somebody of gotham is questioned about like isn't swamp thing helping the environment and he quotes this stupid thing that reagan said about trees making pollution yeah the actual quote from reagan is trees cause more pollution than automobiles and that became like this sort of iconic like I mean, right now, if it would happen today, it would have just been one of those fake news tweets that come out all the time. But at the time... 100% something Trump would say. Yeah, but at the time, it was kind of like, people were, you know, it was after the Vietnam War, and it was after Silent Spring, and it was after this sort of awareness that these heavy-duty, you know, defoliants like napalm and DDT were not only killing the things that they were supposed to kill, but that the effects of these chemicals was a long-term effect on the earth in general. Yeah. And I feel like Ronald Reagan being pro-business in the 80s, he didn't care about the environment. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like that, and it's weirdly still relevant that there's this concept of that this big person of authority who doesn't care about the environment. And the stupid, inaccurate statements that they say have this effect. Now, Ronald Reagan said this about the environment, about automobiles. Everybody knows, even at that time, that it was incorrect. Mm-hmm. But that had, like, seeped down and mutated to the to the point where it was a justification for being bad and doing things that were bad for the environment. And it's the same thing that's, like, happening now. Yeah. But, like, I guess Alan Moore was right, though. These harsh chemicals and these sort of 
short-sighted thinking about the environment were going to lead to long-term problems. And this mayor is sort of like a microcosm of that. He makes this stupid saying, and then what happens is Lex Luthor takes that and uses those chemicals to destroy the swamp thing. Yeah. I mean, this whole thing becomes, like, the saddest, like, passion play of our the state of the environment here. We get this sequence where the government... And the military and a businessman team up and cruelly execute the earth against the wishes of the public. As the public looks on in horror, unable to do anything to stop them. Like, it's hard for me to read this sequence where Swamp Thing is enveloped in flames and not see the forest fires that are happening in the Amazon right now. Exactly. But you know what I think is interesting? You'll see it more in this next issue. Like... Batman was tricked. Yeah. He was tricked. And you would think that as Batman and as how black and white and right and wrong he is, that he would be more outraged about being tricked than he is. Yeah, that's one of the weaknesses, I think, of this story is that it doesn't really make sense that Batman's not more committed to figuring out who this is. And I think that has less to do... I think that that's mostly comes down to the fact that, like, Alan Moore's not interested in telling the story about Batman fighting Dilworth like that's not the story he cares about here and but it it is weird that Batman is not more uh committed to avenging this but also I wanted to talk about uh as Swamp Thing is dying he he remembers being Alec Holland or he has a flash of Holland's memories because he's burning again he's being burnt alive by the napalm and then uh he says he has a vision of the parliament and he remembers their uh, power tempts anger, and anger is like wildfire. And then his last thought as he burns is, oh, Abby, Abby, I love... And he can't even get out the last thing before his body collapses. And uh, then we get that last panel of Batman embracing Abby as she like hides her face from the uh, burning remains of Swamp Thing, and everyone... Looks on horrified. Chester's holding the little girl, and she's got her face buried in his shoulder. And, like, Bullock and Gordon are there. And, I mean, for as far as people reading the comics knew at the time, Swamp Thing's dead. Well, yeah. I mean, he says it right at the end. No, no signs of abnormal bioelectric activity within a thousand miles, sir. He didn't get out. We Got Him is on that last page. That's the last line of that issue. And I think you can, you should know, and you should not expect that the green will help Swamp Thing because he, he did not heed their warning. No, he didn't. So then the next issue, which is number fifty-four, is called Flowers of Romance. This is basically the issue that sort of deals with how Abby is dealing with the death of Swamp Thing. Yeah, she's she's like shut herself off, you know. Um, Batman tries to offer her some comfort where he's like, you know, this can make you stronger. My parents got shot and now I'm Batman. He doesn't say that. Uh, Gordon is like, oh, we're having a, a funeral for Swamp Thing because we feel bad that we let him die in our city. Chester's like, hey, I'm starting an environmental group to carry on his work. Do you, like, here's my number if you want to talk at any point. Uh, and she does, like, kind of pushes them all away. But I think it's, it's it starts, the issue starts out with this sort of weird um, prelude where you see Liz 
the reporter from the previous issues. Yeah. And she's sort of, like, you realize as the story, as the montage goes on, that something has happened to her. So and she's a recluse. After Loose Ends, the very first issue of this run, her and Dennis Barclay just kind of disappear from the comic. And this is where we find out what's been going on with them. And it is horrifying. Oh, yeah. So she's been living in isolation, uh, being abused by Dennis uh, in this, like, apartment by herself for the last two years. And she finally works up the nerve to turn on the TV. And she sees, not only is Abby alive, who Dennis had told her was dead, she learns that the Swamp Thing has died. And she makes a resolution to finally get out of the house and go see Abby. But I think he has convinced her in some kind of weird PTSD, taking advantage of her fear that the Sunderland Corporation is still hunting them. Yeah. And that the general is like, she can't go outside, she can't do anything, and she can't even let people know that she's there because the general will find her. Yeah, she, Dennis has convinced her that he's still alive, uh, that Sunderland is still alive, and he's still out to get them. Uh, I mean, I think with this, I this issue has always confused me to a certain extent. It's really brutal and harrowing, and I've always been a little confused about its place in the comic. Uh, but I was thinking about it now, and I was thinking of, I was remembering when we were discussing the, um, the Returned Man stuff. I think in the second volume. And I talked about how uh, Moore was digging into... Using the supernatural stuff to dig into the way that an abuser warps reality around them. Mm -hmm. And I think this is him showing us the literal version of that. I also think that in a way, this issue is kind of a um, coda to the American Gothic storyline. I think there are a lot of callbacks to that. We see a, a gun framed in a way that ver- I think very much evokes the the um, the uh, Chesterfield repeater house story. Uh, Dennis's eyes are called out and framed in a way that I think invokes the the boogeyman. And it's I think a lot of this issue is more being like, okay, I spent all this time using the supernatural to construct these metaphors to illustrate the darkness that can exist in America, and here's what that actually looks like, and here's it directly threatening characters. That you know, and we get to see Abby deal with it. And she gets to do something on her own without Swamp Thing there to save her. And she lashes out against this darkness and kills it in the form of Dennis Barclay. Yeah, and I think, I mean, it's sort of implied that Abby and Liz had, I don't know if it was a friendship, mm-hmm. but they had a sort of respect respectable sort of impression of each other. They were both strong, independent women who worked, you know, for what they believed in. And they mm-hmm. had this sort of respect for each other. And I think that in some ways it's a comment on the sort of toxic relationships that are like, that's a running theme in Swamp Thing. We saw that in the moon issue with mm-hmm. the werewolf and... Matt Cable, I mean, he's obviously like a toxic abuser in in a lot of ways and represents that. But I think also it's a a way for Abby to come outside of her because she's so much in her head at this mm-hmm. point. She has to come out of her mindset to help Liz. 
And then by helping Liz and by, like you said, doing something that makes her independent of Swamp Thing, but still respectful of the relationship that they had, it makes her realize that there's there's a way to move on if she chooses to move on. Yeah, so so well, the actual action of this issue is Liz shows up, uh, she begins to reveal the extent of the abuse she suffered to Abby, Dennis finds out that Liz left and flies into a rage and picks up his gun uh, and shows up to get her back. He chases Abby and Liz and eventually Abby lures him onto what appears to be a field of flowers but is actually part of the swamp and he falls into the water. There's this really uh, arresting image where he is contrasted against an alligator in the swamp and then they eat him. Yeah, and I think it's, I mean, it, it's kind of sad and bittersweet, but there's, like, the part where Abby is trying to take care of Liz, and then Abby realizes that Liz is so messed up. Mm. Like, whatever Dennis had done to her had really, like, broken her, and she's this sort of fragile, sensitive person who needs help. And even though Abby's in a bad mindset... She realizes that it's more important to her as a human being to help Liz. I mean, it's like a sad scene where she tells her to go take a shower and then she's kind of like standing in the little like four inches of water and then Abby's kind of like, what the hell is going on? And then that's when she realizes that like Dennis had like completely broken her. Yeah, well, she says like it's, oh, she's sort of like shocked. I mean, I really like in this issue, she... This issue really feels like her taking over as the protagonist of the comic because we get her internal monologue in the same way we get Swamp Thing's constant running internal monologue in his issues. And in her narration, she talks about like how surprisingly easy it must be to break a person. And she's sort of horrified at that thought. There's this really disturbing detail where Liz is using stitched up toweling as undergarments which feels like that must be that sounds like a prison it's like something a prisoner would have to do yeah no yes and also i think it it feels like a very real detail like he i feel like alan moore must have picked that up from somewhere from a news story or a real account or something because it's so specific and so like disturbing i feel like i mean this kind of sounds it's it's almost like he he says he can't buy her underclothing because then people would know that a woman lives there. But I feel like the whole act of doing that is like neutralizing her like feminine identity. Which just feels like another callback to the American Gothic stuff with the werewolf storyline. Exactly. And I feel like Abby, who sees this and sees Liz, sees an extreme version of Abby giving up her strong, independent female nature mm. to mourn Swamp Thing. And then she sort of says, well, you know, I can't do this. I have to take care of Liz. But then her solution to fixing the problem that Liz has is to go to the swamp. Yeah, and then she uses the swamp in much the same way that Swamp Thing would. Right, and the swamp kind of responds to her in the same way that the swamp responds to Swamp Thing. Like... She knows that this lake that is covered with flowers is infested with alligators. And so she brings him there and the swamp says, okay, let me take care of this. We know what to do. 
and they send the alligator and the alligator devours him and then her and Liz are left alone but they're both a little bit stronger as females and then that's when she decides well you know what I'm going to go to Gotham I'm going to go to this um memorial service that they're having and I'm going to take her with me and she calls Chester and she calls Chester uh what was I going to say I think, like, I, part of me for a long time was like, oh, this stuff with Liz is maybe a little gratuitous, which it might be, but I think giving the, he, her situation is an appropriate challenge to highlight uh, Abby's strength because, like, we know she's, like, a healer and a caretaker. I also think it's cool that she, you, you know, you said, like, oh, she uses the swamp, the swamp response or, like, swamp thing, but it's also, like, she doesn't. The way that Swamp Thing would have solved this problem would be by asserting his power over the Swamp. Or at least that's what it would have been before the Gotham storyline. And he would have, like, made the alligators eat the guy or something like that. But she just uses her knowledge of the Swamp to set up a situation in which the Swamp can take care of this guy. But I think it's interesting. There's a panel where Abby is hugging Liz and they're walking away. And then it's cut over with her talking on the phone to Chester and then you see, like, his, like, automatic weapon is, like, sinking into the swamp. And she says, yes, yes, I'm feeling better now. Yes, much stronger. Mm-hmm. Dot, dot, dot. And that's when she decides she's going to go to the memorial service. Yeah, and we got a cool image of Swamp Thing in the night sky. Like, he's Mufasa. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like, honestly, obviously there's more Swamp Thing. We, we know now that he's, he's not actually dead which we will get full confirmation of in the next issue but this could have easily been the last issue of swamp thing and it still would have been pretty satisfying i think yeah i think so i mean not as satisfying as our hero being reunited with his love but you know pretty good and so the next issue is like mostly the funeral for swamp thing yeah and it's kind of like it's like the wake Yes. You see all of the characters. Constantine shows up. The Phantom Stranger. The Phantom Stranger. Boston Brand. The boys are all there yeah, to the, pay respects. Me and the boys paying respects to our friend, the fallen Wood And then kind of like Batman's there and he's kind of like, this is a shit show. You know, mm-hmm. I should have done something. I mean, I like a guilty Batman. Uh, and, Gordon gives a long, eloquent speech. Um, and we get these hints that like maybe this Swamp Thing isn't gone see i kind of when when she had the throat the memory where she was look she thought that she had found swamp thing Mm -hmm. and it was his husk and then i so i thought okay maybe they're going to reanimate his husk in some way and then when chester showed up i was like okay maybe chester's going to say like i got this tuber like let's plan it grow a new one and then like constantine shows up and i'm like okay constantine's gonna be like okay don't worry about it i'm just gonna go down to like you know guatemala and get you a new Swamp Thing. I, I just thought for sure that there was a way that Swamp Thing was going to just, like, pop back up. The statue that they built, there's all these flowers around, it's raining. I thought for sure that, like, he was going to come back. How many statues to fallen heroes do you think Gotham has at this point? Do they have, like, a statue walking tour where <laughs> when you go to Gotham? Mm-hmm. Here's all the people who die tragically to show us our <laughs> sins and weaknesses. Here's the Swamp Thing one. Here's one to half of Harvey Dent. <laughs> uh, um, what was I going to say? Oh, so Constantine is like, hey, yeah, I had the psychics do like a sweep of like the metaphysical realm for him, and they didn't, they didn't find anything. 
and also he talks about like how much is this one he talks about like how much he lost recently I think Cause, so. Because, like, literally all of his friends are dead, except for Zatanna, who is almost certainly furious at him because he led to the death of her dad. Yeah. Oh, no. It's when... No, he... I'm thinking about the conversation he and Swamp Thing have when they're coming back from the the big storyline in the beginning. They're, like, on a little raft, and they have a conversation. He says that he, he couldn't find him using magic and psychic powers, and Phantom Stranger's like, I looked all over the world, and he's not... On this planet. Yeah, and then when Bran shows up, he says the same thing. I've scanned the spiritual world and there's no... This is when you learn that the frequency has been disrupted, but it can probably be restored. Because he says, you know, I can't sense him at all. And it kind of hints that they can't sense him because now his frequency has changed. Yeah. Um, that's also, The part where he shows up is pretty funny. He possesses some random guy and he gets really close to Abby and he's like, hey, don't give up hope. I was friends with Swamp Thing. You don't know me. Uh, I think he calls him the big guy. Yeah. And I looked all over the afterworld and he's not there. And so I like that um, the stranger and Constantine are like, we couldn't find him. And they take that as a sign that he is doomed and gone forever. And I like that when Boston Brand can't find him, he takes that as a sign of hope. Yeah. Like, if he's not where I know people go when they're ended, that means his story probably isn't ended. Exactly. And she's, and then he unpossesses the guy and Bullock, like, uh, perp walks him out of the scene and calls him a pervert. But I think it's interesting that, like, all these guys are friends with Swamp Thing, but Swamp Thing never mentions any of these guys to his wife. Yeah, they don't met, she doesn't met, she the only one she knows is Constantine. And Constantine doesn't want to talk to her because I'm sure he at least is convinced that she will think that he is the cause of all this. Because he, she got arrested when he took Swamp Thing away to go help him fight a giant hand. Right, but I think Swamp, I mean, Constantine is guilty of a lot of things, so... Yeah, and so Abby has this memory at one point where she thinks she's talking to Swamp Thing and it turns out to be his husk, and she asks him to never die, and he promises that he won't, which is a promise he seemingly couldn't keep. She has this extended fantasy sequence where she's in, like, a fake town. This is foreshadowing. And Kuma? Is that the town? Where yeah, it's like that? Kuma, but it's like a movie set. Right. And... Swamp Thing's there, and he's alive. And, and the Monkey King is there, too. The Monkey King is hanging on Dina's shoulder. And everyone uh, is like, oh, we're sorry. We were so mean to you, and welcome back, and you can live in the town. And Matt Cable shows up, and he's like, I just filed for automatic divorce, and I'm awake, and you guys can get married, and they're going to get married at the courthouse. And then it just replays the scene of him dying again. And she freaks out. And then she sort of reflects on, like... They ask her if she wants to say anything, and she's like, I don't have anything to say out loud. And she leaves a single rose on Swamp Thing's statue, you know, reflecting the the rose from the courthouse sequence when he first shows up in Gotham. And then she reflects on this, like, thing that Bran told her of, like, you know, he's not in... He mentioned, like, the afterworld, and she's like, oh, like, maybe there's another world after this, and maybe that's comforting. And maybe he's in a heaven somewhere, if there's a heaven big enough. To contain him, and then we see that he is not dead, but well, he yeah, is they, stranded on an alien planet. There's all these really long rectangular panels that start out close to Abby's face and then sort of pans out. You see the city, mm-hmm. then you see the earth, then you see the the whole planet, and then you start to see the sun, and then you start to see the stars, and, and then, you know, you see the Milky Way, and it just gets bigger and bigger. 
And then you see Swamp Thing, and he's completely blue, mm-hmm. and he has all these sort of weird bulbous flowers growing out of his chest, which I guess sort of mimics like when the napalm fire mm-hmm. came out through the front of his chest. And he's all shaggy, and he's blue, and he's obviously on an alien planet. I thought it was like a water, like he had gotten like disintegrated to the part where he was like one molecule and he was living in a water world, but I was completely off on that. Turns out, I no, did, I didn't quite understand the frequency, but now he's tuning. Totally... His it turns out by random chance, the frequency that they tuned him to to disconnect him from the flora of Earth is the same frequency as the flora on another planet. And so when he reaches out across space in one final desperate jump out of his body, he ends up on this blue world where, you know, instead of green pigment, all the flora and all the life, it's seemingly, on this planet is suffused with this blue pigment. Because I guess, I don't know, they maybe they have like a purple sun or something. And, uh, yeah, then we get My Blue Heaven, which is another... I've said this before a bunch of times during this run, but this is another one of my favorite single-issue stories in comics. This might be my favorite... I don't know. I've said that about other ones, but I think this might be my favorite issue of Swamp Thing. Uh, It's also the second time that Alan Moore has put a godlike blue character on a barren world and had them construct their own world around them. Because that happens with Dr. Manhattan in Watchmen as well. I think it's, I mean, this is a really beautiful issue. Yeah, I mean, I mean everything is in tones of like blues and grays, mm-hmm. and there's no green at all. And then you get this sort of really sensitive, sort of swamp thing that's kind of like, I mean, he's kind of repentant because he knows. He, in a way, is responsible for what happened to him because he pushed it too far, mm. even though he was warned not to push it as far as he did. But then also him dealing himself with the loss of Abby. Yeah. And he does sort of what's mirrored in her issue. And I think this is like their sort of companion pieces where she created this sort of 1950s stereotype of like this movie town. And he creates his version of Huma. From the plant life that he finds on the planet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is it's Swamp Thing alone. He's reflecting on, on loneliness, on loss, on grief, on the passage of time. He uh, it, There's this one point where he's like, how long would it take me to explore this world? 500 years, maybe? And then he's like, Abby would be dead by then. And he doesn't see any way off of this planet. Cause as far as he can tell, he's he's stuck here forever and he slowly begins to explore it and then he starts to he he first experiments with creating a copy of himself they play chess against each other and it constantly ends in draws and he walks off and eventually out of loneliness and desperation he creates a copy of abby but she's imperfect because she's created from his memories and because she's an extension of him her smile's not quite right she doesn't have context in order to give her context he recreates all of huma and then some niggling little splinter in his subconscious creates this duplicate of Constantine to serve as like his conscience who calls him out for giving up and giving in to fantasy and delusion and memory and eventually that he he loses it he dist- the town starts to degrade as his emotional state starts to degrade 
and things, all the people and the objects start to fuse together, and he decapitates the Abby duplicate because she won't stop smiling, and he can't get her smile right because memory is not enough. And finally, he makes one last desperate jump out into space to see if there's a way for him to come home. I like how the Constantine that he makes in his mind gives him like a harsh burn. He says, like, I didn't know they served vegetables in here. He recreates a diner. Mm-hmm. And then he's having, like, lunch with Abby. Matt Cable is the cook and he's <laughs> serving dead wasps. Because there are some people he doesn't remember because he didn't have any connection to them. So he fills in the other faces that he doesn't have stored as sharply in his memory with other people. So he creates an Alec and Linda Holland. And he, t- he reflects on, like, the weird nostalgia of controlling Holland's body again and is sad because he doesn't remember as much about Linda as he thinks he should and he makes a Matt Cable but now he's like a diner cook. Yeah, because I think the only time he actually interacted with Matt Cable was when he had the car accident. Well, he interacted with that before that. They were He was a supporting character before Alan Moore came on so like he's got other memories of Cable. Yeah, but I thought it was funny. It was like he makes Constantine and Constantine in his mind is so real He's even insulting him in a in a yeah. I mean, he creates him so he doesn't remember creating him, and he doesn't seem to have control over him. But then he, that Constantine duplicate is like talking about like, hey, you could make me do anything you want, and you could destroy me. But it's like you're not, and you can tell that it's not like it is an extension of Swamp Thing because his dialogue has the ellipses in it. Yeah. But I like that. So then he decides, like, I can't live like this. I have to. Even though I don't know what's going to happen to me when I leave the this frequency, this blue planet, I have to try to get back. Well, then he, he realizes that what he created for himself is a prison. He, call, he calls it a prison. He calls it a purgatory. Um, he he does leave it behind, though. And he, he's as, like, a <laughs> discarded love letter. And he calls it a blue valentine. I think, though, it's kind of like he... The places that Swamp Thing goes, like when he goes into the afterworld and mm-hmm. he meets the dead man, it's kind of the same thing. This sort of... It's a, like a nebulous world that can be anything that the person who's in it can create in their mm-hmm. mind. And I think that's sort of what he gets from the Blue Planet is the same thing. Yeah, well, I think he has this sort of realization, like, if I reach out into the universe, like, I might die. But how is that being dead going to be any different than what's happening here now? And I think in the same way that another way that this connects with Watchmen, I think, is a lot of this issue is more condemning nostalgia. Where it's like dwelling in these memories is like a bad idea because it's always going to be imperfect. It's never going to give you what you actually want. You're never going to be able to grow and change. And the more and more you retreat into memory, the more of a prison you build around yourself and your soul. But I mean also that's another thing I was thinking about this this is very culturally relevant to what we're dealing with now because aren't we dealing with this a strata of society that is so nostalgic that they want to recreate this sort of even the in you know the parts that are bad of previous what they what they're familiar with mm-hmm. and those people are creating changes that are causing problems in modern culture, and it's the same thing. Well, yeah, I mean, I've said it, I don't think I've said it on this podcast, but one of my favorite things to say 
is that fascism is weaponized nostalgia. That's exactly what it is. And I think he realizes that in not, I mean, Alan Moore probably is aware of toxic nostalgia because he's, he's very much like, you know. I think it's a thing he struggles with because you see lots of stuff like, like this, like Swatchman, in all, all of his works that are uh, condemning or critiquing nostalgia. But also he's clearly got this like nerd impulse to like, ooh, what if I reference this old character and like. Yeah. What if I told a whole comic that was about Victorian adventure heroes? But I think a lot of the complaints and a lot of the criticism about the work of Al Moore is, look what he's done to this character. Mm-hmm. Look what he's done to Batman. Look what he's done to this ca- You know, so the, the people who want to have this sort of idea of a character the way that they want it to be, like, you know, the ideas of Batman from the 60s, but, like, you know, now they're creating this new kind of... Batman, they're creating these, taking these older characters and giving them new life, is kind of like a comment also on that sort of restrictive nostalgia where people do, people want things to stay the same because that's the way they like it. Mm-hmm. And even though society is changing and values are changing, they're trying to push on their nostalgia, their values onto modern society. Yeah, I mean, it gets back to the stuff we were talking about in a previous volume where you asked me about how I felt about the. You asked me how I felt about the new Watchmen show, and I was like, uh, it seems like making a Watchmen show all these years afterwards kind of proves that you don't get what Watchmen's about. Like, we're seeing this cycle now where people are nostalgic for the Alan Moore works that were about how nostalgia is bad. Yeah. And then they create these imperfect zombie versions of the work to amuse themselves with. Where, you know, the smile is always going to be wrong. Well, I think we see that all the time with people co-opting symbols to, you know, be reactionary. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's lots of talk about, you know, fascism and Antifa and all that stuff. And how some of those groups take symbols that they don't understand and misuse them and try to co-opt them. Yeah. Can we we also just talk about some of the imagery in this issue? Because it is a really beautiful... Oh, it is very beautiful. But there's also this, like, a lot of neat stuff with Swamp Thing's form in this. He makes a lighter version of his body with these, like, gas bulbs so he can float into the sky. And then he explodes it and turns into a seed pod. And there's this little image of Swamp Thing almost looking like Oscar the Grouch where his face is, like, superimposed on, like, a dandelion seed. I also think it's, I mean, it, I got the impression it may be, like, the effects of the gravity had on Swamp Thing. Because, like, all of, like, the edges of Swamp Thing are very sort of, um, they look like raindrops. Mm-hmm. But they're all pointing upward. Yeah. So, like, he's being pulled upward. Mm-hmm. That's what made me think that this might have been a water planet. Yeah, I, I get that. Um, there's also, he talks about how the... Atmosphere is rich in helium, so when he's playing chess with himself, their voices are all high-pitched and absurd-sounding, and so then when he makes Abby, he makes her vocal cords thicker to compensate for the helium. I like how also her hair is still white with the black streak in it, but it's made of flowers. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's really funny. Yeah, I know. It's very... It's it's. It's still organic and it's still natural, mm-hmm. but it is obviously not the environment that Swamp Thing is used to. 
Yeah, and that's where this volume ends. We get next issue is going to be called The Mystery in Space, which is, a, again, like, this whole comic is about, like, oh, nostalgia bad. And then it's like, the next issue is named after an old comic. And also, I think that the font and the color, I mean, it kind of looks like it's hearkening back. Oh, yeah, all his, so throughout the whole run, Swamp Thing's were balloons, like his thought caption box balloon things have been yellow with black text, and now they're blue here because he's tuned into the blue. Uh, yeah, so, um. So we're just to assume that he has released himself from this, his physical form, and now he's going to try to sort of jump from planet to planet till he gets back or jump from planet to planet till he figures out how to retune himself back to the game. Yeah, yes that. I mean, he needs to he needs to physically get back, but he also has to figure out how to get his he calls it his electroskeleton. I like it back the, in tune. I like at the end like the the back page of the volume it says, "You thought that it could not get worse. You mm-hmm. imagined that things have reached their limit." Do not delude yourselves. There are no limits. Yeah. Um, do you have anything else to say about this volume? I think this really sets up for like a dramatic ending mm-hmm. to this whole story arc. I'm excited to sort of see what happens next. Yeah. Without giving away too many spoilers, what is what can we expect? I mean, it's, it's Swamp Thing's Odyssey. We're going to get a <laughs> bunch of issues of him traveling through space trying to get home to his... Lost love. Is there... So, at this point, Constantine just assumes that he's dead. He's not doing anything to he, Yeah, he thinks he's dead. He's just okay. dead. Uh, so no one on Earth is trying to help Swamp Thing get back. I mean, the only one who thinks he's still alive is Boston Brand, and he's literally a ghost and has no way of trying to get him back. Uh, and I think he just has faith that Swamp Thing will get back on his own, which, why wouldn't he, after what he's seen Swamp Thing do? Yeah, I think Swamp Thing has proven himself to be... If not, like, slightly hot-headed, mm. but very powerful and very introspective. Uh, I'll, give, I'll give one hint. There is an issue coming up in the next volume uh, that involves the Green Lanterns. That's Plural. totally... It's not, any like, Hal Jordan or, like, one of the Earth Green Lanterns. It's the Green Lantern in space. Um, that's totally wild, and I'm really excited to talk about that issue specifically. Okay. Uh, yeah. So what do we have coming up next? Uh, coming up next we have, uh, another novella issue, um, not issue, episode. Uh, we're gonna talk about Dark Harvest by Norman, uh, Partridge. That'll be our sort of, like, uh, Halloween episode. Uh, you know, because it's about a spooky story with a pumpkin in it. We haven't seen Swamp Thing use any pumpkins for anything at any point. No. Uh, I mean, I don't know what he would use a pumpkin for, but, you know, we could have gotten, like, a cool cool jack-o'-lantern swamp thing that hasn't happened. (laughs) Okay, so I wanted to ask, wait, before we wrap up this issue, do you you think Swamp Thing was wrong? Like, do you think he, like, the parliament was right and he did overstep his bounds in the way he dealt with Gotham in trying to get Abby back? I think he did, and I think that... Either the Parliament knew that he was prone to this sort of largesse of, you know, this extreme reaction, and they knew it was going to happen, so they tried to warn him, but I noticed that they didn't do anything to help him. 
Yeah. So I think that they, I mean, they it's don't... kind of like, well, if you're going to do it, you're going to learn this lesson. Because I think the whole underarching storyline of this whole saga of the Swamp Thing is Swamp Thing is learning how to be an Earth elemental. Mm-hmm. And I think even this is a learning exercise to him. He got so extreme that he was literally re-frequencied out of the earth that he is the elemental for. So now he's an elemental who's not connected to the earth and is now free-range flowing through space. Yeah, I think that they're... I don't think they're morally right. I think everything Swamp Thing did was justified and was, in fact, very cool. But I think they're pragmatically right. I think the point that he reflects on as he's dying is true. The power court's anger thing is like... That that feels very real, and that is a thing he should have taken into account before he made this dramatic show of power. But I think, I mean, he says when he meets with the Parliament that they're old-fashioned, they're stodgy, they're not open to new ideas, and he's got to do his own thing, and they're like, okay, go do your own thing, and then everyone has to learn a lesson. Like, Swamp Thing needs to learn how to curb his power... The Parliament needs to learn how to be more open-minded. Mm-hmm. And the Earth needs to learn, like, not to shit on the environment. Like, everybody's got to learn. And Constantine has to learn not to be a jerk to his best friend. And Monroe needs to learn that, like, he can make amends, you know. And mm-hmm. I mean, he can at the very least offer his wife some comfort in her dying moments that he kind of helped cause by contributing to the polluting of... Uh, I can't remember the name of the town, but, you know. But even, I mean, to a certain extent, Matt has to learn. Matt Cable. Well, he learns his lessons. We we read the comic where he learns his lessons. Yeah, it takes him 20 years, but... Yeah. Uh, And he has to be a bird for a lot of that. He has to be a bird driving instructor. Mm Mm-hmm. But And then a bird babysitter. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So the other thing that I wanted to, before we end this, I wanted to talk about was... So, we, when we see Swamp Thing primordializing Gotham, he he could end, like, world hunger. And he could just, like, save the environment. There seems to be no limit to his power. He can make plants grow as big and as, as wild as he wants wherever he wants them to. And do you think that he has an obligation to do that? I like, don't do you think th- so. Because I also think that there's a flip side of that. Yes, he can do those things, but when he gives things to people, mm-hmm. what do they do? I mean, he gives the tubers, they cook them, and they try to make monsters, or they use them to get high, or you know, they try to weaponize him. So I feel like... But do you think that there's a cruelty to him not using the powers he has to help people? Well, I think it could be said from any superhero because a lot of the superheroes, they only want to help people when they're in distress. Mm-hmm. But they're not... Like, like Batman only shows up when there's trouble. Yeah. He, he could do things to help society. Any one of them could do things to help society. Yeah. I mean, even Dead Man and you know the Phantom one, they're like, well, we can't help you. We're just volunteers here in hell. Like, obviously, they could. Well, I mean, Dead Man does help people. He is using his powers to help people. He helps people pass on to the realm they're supposed to. He just can't do anything about the fact that this guy got into a car accident once he got back to his body. But I don't think that... I don't think that Swamp Thing has an obligation 
to use his powers to help people. And I don't think that it's cruel that he's not, like, growing giant squashes to feed people who are starving. Because I think it is, in fact, morally wrong for Swamp Thing to use his powers to that extent to directly materially benefit humanity. Because what lesson does that teach them? Like, part of his job is to show humanity that the Earth does not exist at their privilege and for their benefit. He, he, it would be much, it would be a betrayal of his purpose for him to become a servant of humanity because the earth is not supposed to serve humanity. Isn't there a whole subgenre of sci-fi where it's like humans need to be hoisted on their own petards because they have this sort of God complex themselves. Mm -hmm. So even if he wanted to help them, a lot of times I don't think they need help. Like Sunderland Corporation thinks this is the greatest corporation in the world. Why does it need Swamp Thing's help? Mm -hmm. In fact, it doesn't need Swamp Thing. It needs Swamp Thing parts to weaponize. Yeah, I think Swamp Thing can step in and help people when it's problems that they can't solve themselves. We could fix world hunger if we and save the environment if we got our shit together. But in like the dark of the swamp when the boogeyman is coming for someone and there's no one else around except for Swamp Thing, that's when he needs to step in because otherwise a person would die and there's nothing anyone could do about it. That's the whole nature of like superheroes and comic Mm -hmm. books and and movies and novels about these superheroes is that they're like, they want to protect people but people don't want them until, I mean how many story arcs are about like superheroes being persecuted or put in trial for what they did, you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean there's a ton of them and that's a big recurring thing but I think that's a thing that a lot of Super people who read comic books and people who write comic books deal with is like, why isn't Superman like solving all of these problems in the world? And I think that like, well, he's not doing that because he's a fictional character and there needs to be stories with conflict that come later on. But I also, the more time passes, the more I comfortable I become with the idea that it's like superheroes exist to solve problems we can't solve. Like, that's why they're an escapist fiction. Because it's like, there are problems in the world that we can't do anything about. And so it's comforting to have a story where there is a person that could do something about it. And I think it's damaging to have a story where the character does fix a problem that we could and should be fixing on our own. But, I mean, to flip it over, it's the same thing with Lex Luthor. He made $10 million working for 10 minutes as a consultant to figure out how to kill Swamp Thing. Mm-hmm. But what if he was paid from the you know United Nations $10 million to come up with a solution to fix some of the world's problems? But that's what I was talking about. He's, he is like... He doesn't feel responsible to come up with positive no. things about society. Because he's a very... A, depressingly realistic portrayal of a businessman. But I also think that's the thing I was talking about with him contrasted against Swamp Thing is, like, he is just this, like, locus of unfocused aggression. Lex Luthor just wants to destroy, and that's all he cares about. We'll, at some point, presumably, talk about All-Star Superman on this podcast because it's one of my favorite comics of all time. But there's a part in that where Superman says to Lex Luthor, like, Hey, you know, you can finally put your money where your mouth is. I'm going to get out of your... I'm dying, and I'm going to get out of your way, and you can fix the world like you always said you were going to. And Lex Luthor just leans forward and spits in his face. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) All right. So, uh, do we have anything else to say? No, I think that's it. Uh, So, we're going to read Dark Harvest, and then we're going to read 
Swamp Thing Volume 6, and then we're going to be done with Swamp Thing, and uh, we'll have to announce our, our next comics endeavor. I think after this, we're going to take a short break from doing series and do a couple one-offs, uh, but you'll have to keep listening to the podcast to figure out what they're going to be. That's right. I Hopefully, I won't blurt it out That's, halfway through. Oh, yeah. I forgot. That did happen when Swamp Thing did it. That's fine. <laughs> Uh, That's why I have to say spoiler alert. It's just assumed that I'm going to tell you a secret of some sort. All right. Well, speaking of spoiler alert, spoiler alert. Stay tuned. Stay tuned.